All right, if y'all have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Ephesians 4. And uh, you can also, if you want to put your finger there, you can go to Titus 1. But I'm going to read those. And we have a third passage in Revelation, which I'll read. You don't have to flip there. But go to Ephesians 4, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 16. Then Titus 1, 5 through 9, and then Revelation 17, 14. So Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11, these are the words of God. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Note that part, when each part is working properly. That's Ephesians 4. And then flip, if you want, to Titus 1. Titus 1, 5 through 9. Titus 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And then Revelation 17, 14, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Our Father and God, we come to you this day as your ecclesia, your church, the called, chosen, and faithful ones. We ask and pray that you would stir us so that we might exalt your name among the nations. Help us to understand your word, be equipped by your word, and Father, help us to carry it forth in all areas of life. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so <laughs> the ecclesia today, the church, when, in, in doing this series, I've really just attempted to cover some of the basics. I realize I can't cover everything uh, in 10 weeks, but I'm, I'm trying to at least touch on most things. But I'm trying to cover the basics of Christianity highlighting their importance while trying to make a connection you know, of the doctrine itself to the future of Christendom. So each doctrine ought to be understood for the very purpose and the very reason of the future of Christendom. So that's why I called it Foundations, Biblical Doctrines for the Future of Christendom. It's not just let's relish the past and talk about fun doctrines, but no, what are the doctrines and then how do they move us forward into the future? How do, what are we supposed to do with them? That sort of thing. So that's just another way of saying that we don't study doctrine for doctrine's sake, which is 
uh, a temptation, certainly. We don't study doctrine for um, doctrine's sake. Just let's you know, intellectualize and, and, and please ourselves with how many big words we can say. We don't do it for that reason. We study doctrine for the sake of the kingdom so that we might be faithful and obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ as we carry forth the dominion covenant. So doctrine, we might say, leads us to doxology, the praise and worship and obedience of God. So all that said, understanding the ecclesia, that's the Greek word for church, the ecclesia, the church, and our role as a collective body called Crossing Crown, of course, as it's connected to the larger body of Christ, uh, I think knowing that is important and understanding it is important, so I thought it would be worthwhile to cover at least in one week during this series. Now, the doctrine of the church, when you think about what is the church, that's, that's really the question. It's usually framed around that question, what is the church? What is it? What is this thing that we call church? Further exploratory questions are as follows. What does the church do? So not just what is the church, but what does the church do? How do we know what is or is not a church? That's a good question, because you could stumble in on some weird meeting with Kool-Aid and not be certain eh, what that Kool-Aid is. Jim Jones, okay? So, uh, so how do we know what is a church and what's not a church? And what is the purpose of the church? That's a good, a good question. So those are all that line of thinking. Now, oftentimes in the Reformed tradition, when you think about the doctrine of church, you'll hear about these three things. So if you want to know if something's a church, these three things are usually present. They are emphasized by folks like the Nine Marks crowd, um, the Gospel Coalition-y type. Um, these are the things that they would emphasize on the doctrine of the church. One, preaching of the word. Two, the administration of the sacraments, what we call baptism in the Lord's Supper. And three, godly discipline. So they would say, what is the church? Well, if the word's preached, the sacraments are administered, and if um, godly church discipline is happening, that's how you know it's a really a church. Now, they would say, well, that's how you know you're not at some weird club meeting at the golf course or an HOA meeting. Typically at HOA meetings, you're not hearing the word preached, and you're not taking communion, and and you're not, you are seeing discipline, but it may not be godly discipline. So that's what they would emphasize. And now, I don't, personally, I don't take issue with those three things in and of themselves, for they absolutely are all aspects and things that the ecclesia, the church, does. So we have church courts, and well, we should. We don't much anymore, but we have a process for dealing with sin in the body and so on. What happens when a, a member is not doing their part? Well... Paul tells us in Ephesians, as we'll get to. So those three, three things are fine, but there's more to it. To limit, our, to limit our definition of the church to those three things, I think, is reductionistic in that it leaves out a whole host of other considerations. So it's fine to say, yeah, you know, God's word is preached in a gathering, in, in the assembly. We love God's word, and it, you know, it manifests itself in various ways over coffee with a friend or at a men's study or whatever, you know, the Bible should be centered. And we do communion and we do those things. And so that, that's fine. But to just say that that's it, I think is incredibly reductionistic. So the word ekklesia, that's a Greek word. It actually comes from the Hebrew word kahal. And that simply means, in its simple definition, it just simply means the assembly of the called out ones. 
the assembly of the called out ones, people who have been called out of darkness into God's light. We've been called out. We've been sanctified. We've been set apart for a specific task. And in being called out, we are assembled. So we're the assembly of the called out ones. Now, dating back to the 5th century BC, the demos, that's the people, D-E-M-O-S, the people would gather together in these Greek city-states and and they would gather as an ecclesia, uh, what you might call an organized body politic, uh, heavy emphasis on localism. They would gather together as an ecclesia for, as an organized body, body politic. They were essentially an assembly of citizens who regularly gathered together to make decisions about the social order, about life, uh, about matters pertaining to everyday issues, you know, education, matters of justice, that was what the ecclesia in the Greek understanding, the Greek mind, would have understood. That's what they would have done. Now, think of it in, an, in a Christian context, though. The ecclesia was an, thus an assembled body of believers, uh, excuse me, an assembled body of believers who were put together by the Holy Spirit in covenant fellowship with one another in order to basically constitute a legal body under the Lordship of Christ. So when you think of ethics and justice and righteousness, just think in terms of legality. All of us have been put together by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the person who drives us to this thing we call church, the ecclesia. And we're together in the sense that each of us as individuals have been bought by the blood of Christ, but we're put together in a legal fashion. There's a legal transaction that's involved with the cross of Jesus Christ. We've been declared just, we've been declared righteous, and we've been brought together, we've been assembled. Moreover, the ecclesia was, in one sense, you might call a, a polis. When you think of the word a metropolis, that's the Greek word polis would be like a city. Um, so we, in one sense, are a, a city in that, as a group of citizens, as a group of citizens, it claimed Christ as Lord, his law is supreme, and this new king had total jurisdiction over every area of life. So that's pretty pointed, I think, to declare Christ as Lord. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we're declaring that he, all of human life is to be obedient to him, and this includes the civil sphere. So we're a legal body brought together by the Spirit, blood-bought people, and we are assembled, and the main confession that we're all walking around saying all the time, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And we mean that he is our king, we are his people, his law is supreme, and that law touches every area of life. And next week we'll get into the doctrine of the law. Now, I mentioned last week what Abraham, Abraham Kuyper called sphere sovereignty. And this was Kuyper's way of trying to talk about the spheres and the institutions of government and governance that God has given as the covenant Lord. And they are, as I mentioned briefly last week, family, church, and magistrate or state. Sometimes when I use the word state, I don't necessarily mean state of Virginia. State is just sort of an interchangeable way of saying the civil magistrate. So the, the state today of our state is, is rough. <laughs> Things are, are murky at best. Um, so that's just a short way of saying it. So family, church, and state. And by the way, included in family would be um, a, a young man who's not married or a young woman who's not married. 
You, you are a person, and not only as an individual in a family, your family as in yourself, but also you know, the, the body of Christ as a family in that regard too. But that's what we call the church. So in the pagan world, if you were a 5th century Greek citizen, in the pagan world, or even in a, if you were a 1st century Roman, this pagan idea was that the state or the civil authorities engulfed every area of life. The state was in charge of everything. You could, in the Roman world, you could absolutely worship whatever god you want, but you had to worship Caesar. So yeah, do your own thing, have your own temple to your god or whatever, but whatever name you want to come up with, but you still had to pay homage to Caesar and worship Caesar. So in the pagan world, the state engulfed every area of life. This was certainly true in the Greco-Roman world. Caesar himself declared himself to be Lord. Um, thus, the Roman body politic infiltrated everything, including the religious life of the empire. And by the way, this is happening in America right under our noses. When things turn, from, uh, turn to paganism from Christianity, statism is always the result. More and more control, more and more control over every area of life. And so that's not, like, that's by design. So, however, think of it this way. When the ecclesia was birthed, the church, um, keep in mind that the ecclesia is the Greek concept, but the Hebraic concept is synagogue. That's where those concepts kind of mesh together. But when the ecclesia was birthed, it made a brand new confession. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. And this claim was highly political, and it meant that Jesus himself and not the state claimed total ownership over all facets of life. So that's a big, that's why the church right now is so impotent. But if we, were, if we, were, if we really meant that Jesus is Lord over all things, and we started talking like that and acting like that, you know, things would be a little different. Um, but right now we're not. We've just said, well, Jesus is Lord in between my ears and uh, a few inches below in my heart. And that's the extent of his lordship. But that's not what the early church said. The early church said Jesus is Lord over Caesar. That's a, that's a game changer. So the, the, claim, the claim that Jesus is Lord is highly political and it meant that Jesus and not the state claimed ownership over all facets of life. Individualism was thus balanced with collectivism. Statism always emphasizes the collective. Okay, that's why the whole public health fiasco is a problem. The state has no business in that. Because what they're doing is saying, for the good of everyone, you have to inject the toxins. For the good of all the public health, you have to do what we say. That's, a, that's collectivization. This, the good of the whole over the individual parts. Now, only Christianity balances that tension of the one and the many. You have the individual right to private judgment. You need to be in the Word, and you need to know what the Word says, and you are accountable to God for it. But you're also not just an individual. You're part of the larger church, too. So there's a balance, though, between the one, you as a person, and the many, and the greater good. And only Christianity balances that. At any rate, the pagan view was uh, revived by the German philosopher Hegel, and he believed that the state ought to control every aspect of life. It was, it was this collectivization of man that ultimately brought peace, so they argued. Uh, that's sort of like the proletariat bourgeoisie problem of Marx. And 
And if we can just get the poor people to overtake the working class or the, the rich people, and then everything will be right, and you'll have a communist utopia. Well, everybody's thinking in terms of collectivism. The medieval view, fast forward, Christianity is legalized in the Roman Empire in 313 with the Edict of Milan, thanks to Constantine, Council of Nicaea a few years later in 325. As time moves on into the medieval era, something else emerges. It wasn't the pagan view of the state controlling everything. The medieval view was that the church should control every aspect of life. And we reject that too. That's what we might call an ecclesiocracy, where the church is in control of everything. And that's a problem, because that's a violation of sphere sovereignty and those individual roles that they have. The biblical view, we can call it a Christocracy or a theocracy, if by theos we mean the God of the Bible. We can call it that. But the biblical view is that Christ Jesus is Lord over every aspect of life, every aspect of life, and each institution is thus to fulfill their God-given calling by carrying out God's law in accordance to their particular jurisdiction. So family, obedient to the Lord Jesus. Church, obedient to the Lord Jesus. State, obedient to the Lord Jesus. And not mixing those jurisdictions. That's the biblical view. That's, we want the biblical view in society. So for example, what is the ecclesia to do? What is the church supposed to do? Well, the church has the mission of self-sacrifice. Sacrificial love for the good of the people, right? For the good of the poor among us, for the widow, the orphan. That's true religion, James says. Interposition, interposing for you know, um, the, the weakest among us being those in the womb. The most dangerous place to, to live in America. So the church has that call of self-sacrifice, the call of the ministry of healing. Okay? So I'm, I'm working through some things theologically, and uh, James Jordan pointed something out in a, in a lecture I was listening to recently, and it blew my mind because I'm like, wait, why did I never see this? But Jesus is going around healing people, and why was he healing people? Well, because Israel was called to be a, pe a, a nation of priests, and they were all sick, and they were ill. That's what Leviticus 21 is about. And it was kind of a, a moment of, oh, yeah, duh, that makes sense. Jesus is healing people. He's the high priest. So... Who's the healer of the nations? Jesus. Who's called to go and bring that healing? The church. Uh, just sort of a side note there. Um, kind of an aha moment this week. So that's the church. The church is called to teach the nations how to obey Christ, how to obey God. The magistrate, the civil magistrate, the state, is not supposed to be in the ministry of healing. That's why we have a problem in our prison system. They're trying to heal people instead of execute justice. And it could be the death penalty. It could be restitution. And God calls that just. But we're not. The, the state thinks it can heal and reform people. And it can't. It can't. So the magistrate's job is punishing evil, period. Justice. That's it. Education belongs to the family with the assistance of the church. Um, that's why co-ops are important or, or those types of things. But that's not the jurisdiction of the state. We would say, no, that's, that's not right. So underlying everything is self-government, which is to be emphasized as a fruit of the Spirit. So think of it this way. Um, self-government, if it's truly being exercised in all of those areas, the state becomes very small. Very small. Families 
can thus flourish better when they're not taxed to death. You know, the church can flourish when it doesn't have to deal with the nonsense of statism and so on and so forth. So with that said, I just want to look at our text here. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that the role of individuals in the church is to exercise their certain gifts in the church. He says everyone has a gift. Peter tells us that. But we have these gifts that go on in the church. And in the church, that's supposed to be exercised. In the ecclesia, God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd, pastors, and teachers for this very specific task. And why do they exist? Why do these people with these gifts, why do they exist? And the answer is the equipping and coaching of the saints. They exist for that reason. They have a function. Elders and pastors and teachers and shepherds and and prophets and, and evangelists on the street and and uh, this ecclesia, this assembly, those things exist for the reason and purpose of equipping and coaching the saints for what? The work of the ministry and service to King Jesus. That's what he says in Ephesians. Okay, so it's not just me saying words every week, but I'm, through, through what I do here, through what we do throughout the week and the interactions we have and, and uh, the groups and various things that go on periodically. I mean, that's, that's the goal. The goal is to equip and coach the saints for the work of ministry. Same thing with you children. God's going to mature you and grow you. You have gifts, and your job is to serve other people with those gifts. And let me tell you, serve without complaining. Because that'll be the most natural thing for us to do is to complain about it. So-and-so did this. They're not even really that grateful. How do you know? You're making an assumption. Serve and just serve. That's it. Use your gifts. So the body is to be built up through everyone's participation and everyone's gifting. And this is because the church is to be mature and be unified. So this balanced collective of individuals that looks and reflects like the very Christ who saved them. That's That's the point. So maturation is the goal. Maturation is the goal. Children, all of you, are to grow up, to mature, to be godly people functioning in a a society, warriors for the kingdom. You have gifts that you need to develop. Your parents are trying to help you do that. Um, Sometimes we parents aren't even sure if we're doing our gifts right sometimes. But that's that's part of the maturation process. It's, It's the goal. Everyone is to participate in the life of the ecclesia. And in their participation, everyone is encouraged, everyone is built up in love, and that's the great thing about it. And, and not only should you serve, but you also need to humble yourself and be willing to be served. Because sometimes that can be hard to do. So we need those gifts because there's a lot more maturity to, to be had. We don't want to be carried along, he says in Ephesians 4 here, by the waves of doctrine. Children, you remember going to the ocean? And the waves are, you get in a little further and the waves hit you. And, and well, that's because they're powerful. Well, these ideas and these things in the culture can be very powerful, very persuasive. I've talked to little, you know, whiny socialists uh, at, at college. And they're, they really believe Karl Marx to be such a dream-worthy goal. And, and that can be persuasive to people. But we're not to be carried around and walked, you know, walked all over by these ideas. 
So these vain teachings, these philosophies. So instead, we want to grow and we want to combat them. So children, you're being taught to grow up in the ways of Cornelius Van Til. <laughs> so you can be a presuppositionalist who just destroys every argument that's out there. Just destroy it. These lofty speculations. Just go and dismantle Marxism. And we want you to be able to do that. So hang in tight. I know that's a lot. Some of you are really little. But just remember, Marxism is evil. Today's lesson in the sermon, I guess. So as the church advances and infiltrates and invades cultures, new converts are brought in, and they too need to mature and they need to grow in Christ. So the church is actually a military boot camp. Church is a military boot camp. More on that later. Titus 1. I'm not going to read it again, but Titus 1, Paul gives us some instructions. Um, he actually writes this letter to Titus, who was a young pastor. Paul had left him in the island of Crete out in the Mediterranean, and he put him there to, quote, put what remained into order. They had did some evangelism. They saw some converts. There were connections made. There was order that needed to take place in that church, so he put Titus there. Now, the church was young. The church needed pastors and teachers and shepherds and folks to come in and, and explain them Christian doctrine and theology so that they could grow and mature. Now, here and along with 1 Timothy 3, we have qualifications for these men. These qualifications are certainly meant for all Christians to obtain. Okay, So being a patient person isn't just the job of a pastor. It's everyone's job. So these are all Christian qualifications in that sense but they need to be emphasized for a very specific reason. And by the way, this idea of being held to a higher standard, that's actually not biblical. There is one standard, there is one law of God. We're all held to that standard. Some may be governed more strictly, which is what James tells us. In order to help the church flourish, so God, God saw fit to make sure that men of maturity were leading the way and helping people grow up into Christ. They were to be humble servants of the ecclesia. And part of that meant giving instructions through sound teaching and so on. And also it meant rebuking those who contradict it. So there's a twofold ministry there. Now, one more thing on that note. There is a division of labor in the ecclesia. There's a division of labor that's put there by God. All Christians are kings and priests. Men and women were all kings and priests in the kingdom. And as such, though, we need to mature. We need to grow. But in order to mature, many people need to be taught. They need to be taught these things. They need to not be taught by just by anyone, but by men of character. And so Paul emphasizes that only men are to be elders in the local ecclesia. And in Revelation 17, 14, just to comment on that. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him, those with the conquering land, are chosen and called uh, called and chosen and faithful. And I threw that sort of in last minute because by many of the older Reformed writers, they would start off their doctrine of the church section with that very verse. As the conquering lamb and as king of kings, as lord of lords, we the ecclesia, we the people of God, are called by him, chosen by him, and as such we are to be faithful to him. So the foremost role... If you think, like, what is the church? How do you know if you're in a church? Or what's the purpose of the church? The foremost thing, we are to be faithful to Jesus, period. That's the foremost thing. 
So let's unpack this a little bit more. So when a person is converted and is transformed by the gospel, she is not by herself. She's not by herself. She's not alone. Once the Spirit applies the work of Christ to her, she is now brought forth into a new covenantal relationship. She is incorporated into a fellowship, into a relationship through baptism. She is a citizen of a new nation. She is now the member of a much larger organism, the body and the bride of Christ. She was baptized. She converted and came in. She didn't grow up in the Christian home, but she, she converted I think of Lydia in Acts 16, but she was brought in, she was baptized, she partakes of the Lord's Supper as a meal of faith with the community. Those are two of the signs and seals of grace, by the way. So this gathering of believers now confesses the Lordship of Christ. They are the communion, they are the church, the ecclesia, they are the assembly of the way. All of us were brought into that. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church when I was two weeks old. Okay, I've been there since. I don't have a crazy drastic story of conversion. I wasn't you know, addicted to drugs and all this stuff. That's not my story. Um, and I wasn't baptized until I was 10. But I was, some of you have a different story, though. You have a different background. But all of us converge with those backgrounds into this one moment, this moment of baptism, this moment of being incorporated into the church. You've been brought into something, the church. And interestingly enough, in James 2.2 and Hebrews 10.25, the word synagogue is used for the Christian church. So doing a little word study this week. The word synagogue is used. But in places like Acts 7.28, the word is ecclesia. So these are two words that come in the New Testament to describe the church. The, the ecclesia, the synagogue. So these are two ideas that kind of come together. And the point is, early on in the Christian church... As it was growing and expanding, I really believe this. I think a lot of them had to sort of figure things out on the fly. I mean, Peter had to be told, hey, the Gentiles are coming in, get ready. You know, Paul, Saul had to be converted, and he, his name is Paul. I think they were trying to figure things out. But they all knew that there's this idea of an ecclesia, and that's what Jesus, that's the word Jesus used in Matthew. They, all, they had the idea of the ecclesia, the, the Greek background, and then they also had the synagogue. The, these two words, the Greek ecclesia, the Hebrew synagogue, that became this new church, the new ecclesia, the assembly of Jesus Christ our Lord. So when we read through the book of Acts, we learn a whole lot of stuff about the early church, the dynamic of the early ecclesia. The word itself is a many-layered term, the many, many different usages. The church universal refers to all the churches collectively together in this covenant. Bodies in India and Pakistan and Africa, Russia, everywhere. That's the quote-unquote church, the universal church, or what we might call the visible church. In the book of Acts, there were churches in various regions like Antioch, Lystra, and Derbe. There were gatherings of believers in Rome. There were gatherings in church, uh, Corinth, rather, in uh, Ephesus, and Philippi, and Colossae. Um, this is the church universal from Pentecost to today. Now, in the first century, when these new believers weren't at synagogue, remember, a lot of them were Jewish. They were going to the synagogue. They were still following those patterns. Eventually, they broke away but they took with them the synagogue model for the church. And I would point you to Jordan's message a couple years ago 
um, the church is not a mini temple. We're more, we're more in the synagogue thing of, um, side of things. But when they weren't at synagogue, they met in homes regularly, all the time, sometimes every day of the week, early on. The pressure was coming. They gathered to encourage one another and so on. By the way, they didn't have a couch and nice chairs. They may have had some chairs to recline, but a lot of them just sat on the floor and they didn't complain. They got together, breaking bread, praying, listening to teachers. Paul would come in and teach all night. Eutychus fell out of the window, died, and had to be raised back from the dead. Paul spoke a long time. You think I speak a long time? <laughs> the first day of the week would have been a work day, Sunday, in the Greco-Roman world. Sunday was the work day in the Jewish world. Friday night to Saturday night was one of the regular Sabbaths. They had multiple Sabbaths at different times, but... The first day they got together, they would fellowship. The new Christian Sabbath would occur. You can see 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Acts 27, 20, verse 7, and then Revelation 1, 10. But that's what they did in the early church. The church then, in its entirety, is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. The Bible also calls the church the bride of the Lamb, adorned for her husband. The church is the house of God, the temple of God, being built up by the apostles and prophets, etc., Christ, says Peter, is the cornerstone. He's the stone, and we are living stones in this temple. 1 Peter 2.9 sees the church as the new Israel of God. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. So the church is thus not some sort of philosophical abstraction. It's not what it is, but a real organism being put together in, by Christ in history. Real people with flesh and blood we are the church. And those who have gone before us, they're the church triumphant. They're with Christ in heaven. But we here on earth right now are what's called the church militant, advancing the kingdom one person and institution at a time. Listen to what Bobbing says about the church. He says, The church is holy, is a holy people, and the believers are holy persons or saints, for they're all together and each for himself temples of the Holy Spirit. Note that. You as a person, you individually are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But guess what? The church collectively is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, the one and the many. By that spirit, Bobbing says, they are washed and sanctified in Christ Jesus. And they are therefore to shun and to do battle to the death against all sins, all works of the flesh, all worldly desires, and on the contrary, are to exercise all the virtues and to support all that is good. Church must fight against sin. Church must promote what is good. That's our task. Now, there's a nuance I'd like to make, and it's something that Rushton, he says. I actually couldn't even track down exactly where he said it this week. Uh, Woe is me. My books are everywhere and not where I need them. But he emphasized this in his writings, and um, and I I read it, I think, a few years ago. But, again, I couldn't find it. But... He emphasized the fact that the church is not a terminal institution, but a functional one, meaning the end goal is not just to be in the church. Oh, we're in the church. Cool. Let's just be bored together every Sunday. No, the church is not a terminal institution, meaning it's not the final stop. It's a functional institution. It has a purpose and a function. And this is important because far too many Christians... Far too many Christians have conflated the kingdom of God with the church. Especially our our brothers and sisters who we love, 
who are more on the high church side of things, um, pastor who wears a robe so as to not distract people. I just find it super distracting that he's wearing a robe. Um, so it's kind of, maybe I'm, I'm strange, but there's a reason they do it and they're, you know, it's fine. He's con they're convinced in their mind and I have, I have no problem with that. I don't, I don't take issue. Um, but this idea that the kingdom is synonymous with the church is sort of a, a mindset, I think, among many Christians. And to be clear, the kingdom of God is far greater than the church. It's far greater. It covers more ground than the church. And it is more than the family, the church, and the state. In fact, it transcends space and time as well because the kingdom of God is the rule of God himself. So it can't be reduced down to an institutional church, nor it can be equated with it. The kingdom is the mother of the church in that it gives birth to the church, if that makes sense. So the kingdom necessarily precedes the church, for without the kingdom, that guess what? There is no church. Without the kingdom, there's no church. What Rush Dooney was getting at, or at least what I'm getting at as I'm trying to apply what he had said, is that the church does not exist for the sake of itself, but for the advancement of the kingdom of God. It doesn't exist for itself, but for the advancement of the kingdom of God. As the people of God, we are his property. We, he, he is our owner. We belong to him. Okay, you, if you're wearing a hat or a toy or something, you look and it says made in China. Well, you have a made from heaven tag on you. I don't know where it's at. I've never found it, but... <laughs> Um, but that's what you have. You are God's property. And as God's people, he lays claim and total authority over us. So we have no claim over against him, not, none at all. So the entirety of our existence is by his mercy and his grace. So this means as a family of servants, that's what we are, a family of servants. We've been sent out into the world to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life, We to every single realm. We must be obedient to our master and his kingdom because we exist to serve him and not ourselves. Okay, so children, if your sister needs help and, and, or your brother and your parents says, hey, could you go help with what they're doing? And you like, you know, you have that response of, I don't want to. You're not serving the kingdom. Because if you were serving the kingdom, you would immediately, without any begrudging attitude, go and you would serve. Because you're serving someone who's in the kingdom as well. See, very, very small and practical point of emphasis. Because we don't belong to ourselves. We were bought with a price. So rather than institutionalizing the church, which emphasizes offices and status and those types of things, um, where you have to kiss the Pope's ring, that sort of thing. Um, I'll never let you kiss my ring. Just FYI, it's my wedding ring. Don't kiss it, okay? It's mine. That happens, though, in the Roman Catholic Church. So rather than institutionalizing the church, which emphasizes offices and statuses and, and all that, we want to emphasize function and calling, the greater mission of discipling and teaching the, the nation. So the question is never, well, how can we build our brand? You know, how, how can we expand our budget? How can we do a bigger Easter egg helicopter drop next year? Still triggered by that, okay? <laughs> Things in my past. But that's the wrong set of questions, though. That's the questions of, of a church who exists for the sake of itself, even though they're trying to say they exist for the lost. No, it's for themselves. The question is, are we being faithful in teaching this county what it means to follow Christ? I would love to hear pastors and elders in every church ask that question. 
Are we being faithful in teaching Fauquier County, Culpeper County, Rappahannock County, Prince William County, Loudoun County? Okay, are we being faithful in teaching them how to obey Christ? And if we stop seeing ourselves as being the property of Christ's kingdom, we'll start seeing ourselves as our own property, and then disastrous consequences will follow. So, wrapping up, just like two more minutes. I want to emphasize the nature and the purpose of the church being more akin to a military boot camp than even a hospital for sinners. How many have heard that, right? The church is a hospital for sinners. Sort of. I, I take slightly, a slight issue with it. I think it's more akin to a military boot camp than that. And the hospital analogy works, kind of, but I think we can do better. We do have a triage unit, <laughs> okay? The barracks has a triage unit, absolutely. No doubt about it. But as individuals and families, we do that work in many different ways. So it's like, you know, if, if you're out sharing the gospel on the street with someone, was that you doing it or was that Crossing Crown doing it? I mean, it doesn't, does it matter? Right, it doesn't, ultimately. What matters, though, is that the gospel was going forth in that moment. So, yeah, you were doing it. The Holy Spirit was working in you. And, and you happened to have a group, an, an ecclesia, an assembly, where we could bring that person in and say, we have a triage unit. Let's get you fixed up, stitched up, and let's train you now so you can go do the same thing. The military boot camp has a triage unit, no doubt. But as individuals and families and those types of things, we are out doing those things. Our gathering on Sunday isn't primarily so that we could get a bunch of people to come in. If we were doing that, we would do a terrible job. We meet in homes. <laughs> so, so where we meet and when we meet, those sort of things, I mean, that's, that's really not even the foremost question, but what is it that we're trying to achieve? So through, through, the, through the people we meet at the park or on the streets or at work or whatever the issue is or the location we are all, in one sense, individual moving triage units dispensing the true cure to man's ultimate need. And that, that's happening all the time, or it should be, right? But when it comes to this synagogue-modeled ecclesia, cross and crown, we are to be a military boot camp training soldiers to exercise their gifts for the growth and maturity of all. And listen... The church will not regain its influence in this nation until it, gets, until it goes back to the Holy Spirit for instructions for how to be a better government than what we have right now. And by government, I mean all, all of it, all spheres. We have to go back to the Holy Spirit and God's Word for instructions on how to be a better government than what we have going on all around us. We have a ton of teaching to do, right? We need to teach fiscal responsibility. Inflation is, we're feeling the effects of that right now. Um, lumber prices increasing, which just means the dollar is decreasing. We have, we have fiscal responsibility problems in our country. We need to teach this county how to walk away from being an overly centralized, smaller version of DC. Some of the stuff that Chris has been emphasizing. We have a ton of parents who are still trusting the government education centers. They need to be taught not to do this. We need to educate people on the problem of putting the government in charge of your health to address a more recent issue. 
So a lot of teaching needs to happen and needs to occur so that, and, and many churches have farmed out their calling, letting the state control them. So something, real quick, and then we'll be done. Something that we have emphasized from day one. Day one, talking to Jordan, coming here, making the decision. Day one, this is what we've emphasized. Cross and crown is to grow and be a miniature social order that models what life is like in the kingdom so that others will see it, so others will know it, and they will learn how to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. That has been our mission from day one. And it's a very different way of thinking about church. It's a very different way of thinking about church. But it's the way of our master, as I see it. Let's pray. Father, you've called us out of darkness and into your son's light, and we thank you for that. And so we want to walk in that light and not be hypocrites who like the darkness but try to walk both lines. We want to be completely in your light, the light of your word, the light of your gospel, the light of your law. So we ask and pray as, our, as what we call cross and crown that we would be uh, that social order, Lord, that we would, in fact, um, teach this nation, this county, the counties around us, how to, how to function in the kingdom of God. Lord, I, I, our, heart's, our heart's prayer is not that, not that the church would be the tail, but would be the head. That, that unbelievers and folks who are engulfed in paganism would look at the Christian church and say, what in the world are they going to do next? What are they up to? Father, help us. Help us to be creative when we need to be creative, but help us ultimately to be obedient when we need to be obedient. So we ask this in the name of your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.